The moment has finally arrived. What Jesus has foretold and predicted three times already in Mark's gospel with increasing detail, he, the Son of Man, must die. How it had happened, he's already explained what would happen. He foretold that he would be taken captive by the Jewish leaders, condemned by them to death, and delivered over to the Gentiles under the authority of Pontius Pilate, who would authorize the death penalty. And this is exactly how it happened, with one exception. The one authorized to approve Jesus' death, Pontius Pilate, has actually done everything he can to try to release him and convince the crowds and the leaders of his innocence. But his efforts ultimately failed, and so Jesus was scourged or whipped and delivered over to his executioners. But this morning, we are specifically examining how Jesus was treated by the soldiers. This treatment may be summarized with the word which you'll find in my sermon title, mocking. It's found in verse 20 of our text. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has been mocked. He was mocked in Mark 14:65, where some of the religious leaders treated him spitefully and demanded that he prophesy to them. And it's not the last time he'll, he'll be mocked either. In Mark 15, 29 to 32, next week, we will see that even on the cross where Jesus hangs, he's mocked even by the criminals that are hanging to his right and to his left. But the mocking in our text today is unique because it specifically is coming from Roman soldiers, government officials, who are sarcastically ridiculing his title as King of the Jews. Our passage describes this mockery in very specific detail, which we're going to look at this morning. But within the details of their mockery, we also see more than just a spotlight on the depravity of these Roman soldiers. Their cynicism also highlights some precious truths about our Lord Jesus Christ through their ridicule his royalty shines through. In their malignancy, his majesty boldly emerges, and with their gory derision, you will see his glorious dignity. So let's begin by reading the text before us and asking God to bless us as we consider the mockery of the king. This is Mark chapter 15, beginning with verse 16. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak. And weaving or twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. Let us pray. Father, your word has been read. 
And now I pray that it will be explained and proclaimed faithfully, helpfully, boldly. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts and reflections and questions and considerations on each one of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer, and we pray this in Jesus' name. As I begin, I'd like to retell the story and point out seven ways that we see Jesus, our Lord, the King, mocked in this text. The first two things that the soldiers, the soldiers do to mock him is they mock him with counterfeit clothes. Verse 17 says, they clothed him with a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Now, the soldiers, by placing this purple cloak upon him and the crown of thorns, which likely resembled the, the Greek wreath of victory that was given to a conquering athlete or general. By doing this, they were making fun of this so-called king. While they sort of make Jesus look the part, the reality and truth is that from where they stood, he was a complete sham. Now these men knew royalty. And they knew conquering generals. And this miserable excuse of a human being standing in front of them was none of that. I want to give you an example of something that is a total fraud from the world of art today. In 2018, a sculpture called Io Sono, which in Italian means I am, was mounted on a pedestal in a museum. It was sold to the museum for $18,000. But the problem, that what was on this pedestal was nothing. It was literally nothing. The artist's name is Salvatore Garau, and his immaterial sculpture, Io Sono, literally does not exist. Christian art critic Richard Bledsoe comments, what the purchaser received for their money was the so-called artist poor excuse of an explanation and a genuine certificate of authenticity for nothing. With these instructions, they are to keep the five-foot square space available for nothing to be on display. And fortunately, it does not require any special lighting or climate control. What a bargain. Now this is a total fraud. And if you're an art major at the university, we can talk about it afterwards. It's sort of a modern example of the emperor's new clothes. Do you know that story? And while elites and postmodern radicals fall for such things, ordinary people like you and me are not persuaded. Back to our story. These soldiers are the ordinary people. And what they're looking at may as well have been an invisible sculpture purchased for $18,000. By ridiculing him, they are claiming to see through his fraudulent and invisible kingship. They think it's ridiculous, much like we think Senor Garau's sculpture is ridiculous. So what do they do? 
they dress him in sham royal garments as a mockery. Their fake coronation ceremony is kind of like them trying to say, what do you think of your king now, huh? So the first two mocking behaviors of the soldiers relate to them clothing him with counterfeits. The third mockery are the words that they greet Jesus with. They say in verse 18, Hail, King of the Jews. With this hail, they confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, but not in their hearts. They do so with their fingers crossed behind their back and with a smirk and a wink. Hail in English might be, long live the king. Yeah, right. This king is about to die. So they accord Jesus a rank and a status that they clearly don't believe. They don't think he has it. They don't think he deserves it. And he'll never get it. In fact, they think he deserves the opposite. So they mock him with counterfeit clothes, with sarcastic words. The next two mockeries in our text are the false behaviors of the Roman guards. They salute Jesus with their hands, and they kneel down before him and pretend to worship him. Now, in the military, when you salute someone, you salute someone of a higher rank. Likewise, in the rare instances in modern life, when you bend the knee to someone, you do it out of deference or reverence or submission to that person, recognizing that they have authority over you. An illustration of this is the rules guiding and governing our president when he goes abroad and meets a royal dignitary or a leader of another nation. There are very strict protocols. The president is not to kneel. The president is not to bow. And when the president doesn't follow the exact specifications for his body posture when meeting another, and there's any hint that he's submitting, it's like, we may as well be surrendering to that country. So when these soldiers bend their knees and mock worship, they're saying, this is the last guy I would ever submit to. You know, it's not an accident. There's only one other place where someone kneels to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. It's the Gerasene demoniac in Mark chapter 5, verse 3, who truly really and truly sees and believes that Jesus is the Son of God. These soldiers had no intention of submitting to Jesus. Who would worship a captured slave? Who in their right mind would salute a criminal? Counterfeit clothes, sarcastic words, false behavior, and the the last two mockeries of our text I'm calling belittling violence. The soldiers spit on Jesus and beat him about the head and shoulders with the reed. Now, I'm I'm guessing that the beating that Jesus received was probably involved some physical pain, but it was more just like they were smacking him around, just bullying him, just proving that they had total mastery over his bodily actions. It was a one more humiliating or belittling act of violence. That's the story. What does God want you to learn from this story this morning? At the beginning, I suggest that each of these soldiers' evil behaviors actually hides a precious truth about the Lord Jesus. As I've studied this, I've summarized these precious truths 
into the two most important things that I think God wants you to learn. As one commentator put it, amidst this harrowing scene are gleams of light, pointers to what we already know to be true about Jesus. Here's the first gleam or glint of light. Jesus is a new kind of king. Of the two things that I think you need to learn from this passage this morning, the first and the most important is that Jesus is a new and a different kind of king. He's not the kind that the world will recognize. He may as well be an invisible sculpture to most of your friends and colleagues. He is not the kind of king that the world will greet, welcome, appreciate, salute, or approve of. He will not run for the 2020 election and get elected. The kind that the world and the Roman soldiers recognize will ridicule, mock, and belittle, but not reverence, honor, and obey this kind of king. Delivered into their custody, it's clear that the way Jesus' kingship works is completely opposite to the way these soldiers think it should work. They think that people who follow a man like this are out of their minds, utterly stark, raving mad. And so they put on this clown show of a coronation to demonstrate to anybody who is watching including the the cohort or the partial cohort of soldiers that were gathered around, cheering them on. And you know what? They're not altogether wrong. Measured in a certain way, they are absolutely right. Here's Jesus under their control, and they're stripping him like a slave. They're buzzing at him, sticking their tongues out at him, slapping him around, mocking him. And then they're reclothing him with his own garments. How could this man be a king? He's not that kind of king. He's a new kind of king. Utterly different than anything they'd ever known. Not a trace of human power may be seen in our text this morning, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has no authority. He has no control. He is emptied of even the last dregs of ability to manage his situation. Utterly at the whims of these violent men. Oh, he's a king. Make no mistake, he's a different kind of king. He's a new kind of king. He's the son of David, the Christ, the promised Messiah. And in Psalm 110, we learn that the Messiah's enemies will be made a footstool at his feet. Ironically, these men, in acting out a coronation ceremony, are pre-enacting what they will do in the eschatological day of judgment when all of God's enemies will bend the knee before the Christ. And they will not be laughing in that day. Oh, he's a king. 
Not that kind of king. What kind of king comes first to serve and not be served? No one. But Jesus. What kind of kings seeks and saves the lost? No one. But Jesus. What kind of king gives his life as a ransom? No one. But Jesus. What kind of king brings the good news of his victory paid with his own blood? Only Jesus. What kind of king welcomes traitors who deserve to die without mercy? With mercy, only Jesus. This king is a different kind of king. He receives the abuse of his enemies in order to forgive his enemies. He allows rebels to mock him that he might show them the triumph of his grace. He is delivered over to death so that we who are condemned to die might have eternal life. He's a different kind of king for now. Now he's veiled in the likeness of sinful flesh and clothed in garments of weakness. This will soon change. Soon he will be revealed in eschatological glory, honor, and power. And it's not just the soldiers who think he's nuts. It's his disciples. It's his family. In Mark chapter 3, his family says, this man is out of his mind. The crowds, the only ones who recognize him in the Mark's gospel are God the Father, who in his baptism said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. A few demons and the dregs of society the people least likely to succeed as voted by their high school graduating class. A couple of them recognize Jesus. And that's it. And this is why this gospel is here. It's a challenge. What kind of king are you looking for? It's an invitation I invite you to consider a different kind of king. It's a rebuke. Shame on you for thinking that Jesus is going to be that kind of king. Mark wants to persuade you that what you think makes sense is madness and what you call craziness is the most sensible thing in the world. The goal of life and the reason for human existence, service to God in reverence, obedience, and submission to his Son and our Savior, the King, Jesus Christ. The second gleam of light from this passage of Scripture is that the reason that you don't recognize this King is because of sin. 
sin has infected you with a disease. And it's called madness, mania, spiritual insanity. Contrary to popular opinion or a common misunderstanding of sin, is that sin isn't just something that you do. Oh, I sinned. Oh, no. Sin is who you are. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Sin is your all-pervasive, all-prevailing reality. It's the air you breathe. The thoughts that you think. The feelings that beat in your chest. It's the impulse. Your first desire. Your last desire. Our sin. It's what you do. You're an expert. Scripture says that you were born in sin. Scripture says that in Adam's fall sinned we all. Just because you don't think you're a sinner doesn't mean you're not a sinner. That sin itself is your failure to recognize the problem. Sin isn't defined by you either. This is sin, that's okay. Oh no. God defines sin. This is the problem. You you need to get out of the sin-defining business. He's given you a list. It's called the Ten Commandments. That defines sin and nothing else. Realize that Adam's sin wasn't that he wanted to know what God knows. It's a misunderstanding when we think about the knowledge of good and evil. No, Adam's sin was that he wanted to get rid of God altogether. As a sinner, Adam was infected with the deadliest poison. Sin is that poison. It's something that defiles. It's something that pollutes, corrupts. It damages the very essence of what it means to be human. This sin nature is what Scripture calls it, is all-pervasive. It impacts every part of your being. Every thought, word, and deed, as I've said, is tainted by sin. If I gave you a glass of water and put one drop of cyanide in it and said, here, enjoy, it's nice and cool and refreshing, and it's only a drop of cyanide after all. If I made an omelet of six, seven, eight eggs and one of the eggs as it came out was rotten and I put it in the omelet, I said, it's only one egg after all. If I made a nice pot of soup and I spit into it and, and asked you to eat it as I served it up, it's What's a little spittle in an otherwise wonderful pot of tomato bisque? It's the soup I ate yesterday. But there's good news here also in the midst of all this bad news. Because of what we learned in my first point, Jesus, as the new kind of king, takes what is ugly and makes it beautiful. He takes what is polluted and makes it holy. He takes what is nasty and makes it glorious. That's what Jesus does. He is a redeemer king. He does so by assuming a true human nature. And then because he is not a sinner, because he has never sinned, he elevates that nature from its estate of sin and misery to a new one. 
similar to where Adam was before the fall, but better because he elevates you and me in our relationship with God to a place where we can never be rejected by him again. Oh yes, we continue to struggle with sin. But Jesus has fully paid for all our sins and we are forever accepted because of Christ. The mystery of the good news is that Jesus does this work by taking sin upon himself. He who knew no sin, Scripture says, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He is subjected to all the sinful machinery of this world by becoming a slave that you might become God's royal prince, by becoming a criminal that you could be set free from your crimes, by becoming a monster deformed and defiled and disfigured by sin, despised and forsaken of God, that you might be a restored and redeemed work of God's glorious grace. Which brings us back to the soldier's mockery. The soldiers mock Jesus because they are measuring him by sin in the world and in their minds, by the sinful standards of their own system, the empire, by their own measure of power, authority, control, and glory. So what these men do in this passage is intended as a clownish reenactment of the Hail Caesar ceremony, which they probably already performed at some point in their soldiering career. But you're supposed to see in their madness your sin, your insanity, not the, not the madness of Christ. Here's how Calvin puts it. Our filthiness deserves that God should hold it in abhorrence and that all the angels of heaven should spit upon us. But Christ, in order to present us pure and unspotted in the presence of the Father, resolved that he should be spat upon and to be dishonored by every kind of reproach. This means that the disgrace he endures on earth obtains for you the favor of God in heaven. And at the same time, it restores the, the tarnished, twisted image of God that has been disfigured by sin. As I conclude this morning, I'd like to challenge you with four things that you need to do, I think, in response to this text. Scripture has given us to change our lives. We're not supposed to leave the preaching of the word the same. We pray, I pray all week that God's word would go forth and accomplish its purpose. So here are things I think, at least for some of you, all of you, I hope God's word would accomplish this morning. First, guard your heart. Guard your heart from falling into the way of seeing things that the world sees things, of measuring things the way the world measures things. Regularly remind yourself and remind your spouse if you're married and remind your Christian friend, your accountability partner, the person who's your prayer partner that you're walking with in life. Remind one another daily that the world and mankind are entirely steeped in sin. And so are you. Admitting this, and only by admitting this, can you reconnect with the Holy Scriptures, which tells a different story than the story of the world. 
It tells the story that the world should be headed towards. And through God the Holy Spirit illuminating your eyes and your mind, you can see through the looking glass of Scripture the truly sane picture. Psalm 73 is a good place to start for this. I'm not going to go into it in detail this morning, but I'm going to walk you through it in summary, and I'd like you to take this perhaps as an assignment this afternoon or sometime this week. Psalm 73 is a psalm of despair. Sounds fun, doesn't it? It's despairing because the author of the psalm is looking around him and seeing how awesome everybody's life is except his own. And the wicked and the enemies of God and those who are perverse and perverted and celebrating evil are, are thriving like, like green trees. And I started out this morning with Psalm 1. That's not the picture of the righteous that we see in the Bible. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And so the poet, the singer of the psalm says, Why, Lord, why is this happening to me? He explains that his feet had almost slipped. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to feeling spiritually like you're standing on the edge and your feet almost slip? Can you relate to that? What rescues the psalmist in Psalm 73 is a sort of restoration of his insight or vision, which took place in the context, we're not exactly sure, the psalm isn't specific here, but I'm calling it in the context of public worship, church, believe it or not, he went to church. And something happened in that worship service. Something clicked in his mind. It was like he went to the eye doctor and the lens dropped into place. Ah, I can see the chart. How's that one? No, no, no. Yes. If you wear glasses, you know how good that feels. Some gathering of God's people... As Reformation Christians, we might call it an experience of the means of grace, the word, the sacrament, and prayer. He says, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. And this reorientation of his priorities, which took place, as I said, in some kind of worship service for the poet, revealed the real way the world works. And his spiritual appetite was transformed. And this is what he said. This is the resolution of the story. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
My first application then is guard your heart. Secondly, recommit to Christian worship. I think the psalmist gives us a picture of the importance of Christian worship, something that is all too easy to take for granted, especially as a covenant child, especially if you're long in the tooth in the Christian faith. This is anything but mundane. What we're doing this morning is anything but ordinary. It is a reorientation of the lens of your life which gets jarred and battered and buffeted by the foolish, stupid decisions that we make on a daily basis, by the temptations that surround us, by the people that try to tear us down, even if they don't realize it. They're just parroting the party line, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Christian worship, divine, heaven-sent reorientation of reality. It's a reality check for the child of God. It's a gleam of light piercing through the darkness. It's a refreshment, a strengthening, an empowerment. I'm being told, says the faithful worshiper, at least once a week, that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. The faithful worshiper says, tell me this. I need to hear the truth. My mind is lying to me. My friends are lying to me. My parents are lying to me. I need someone to speak the truth. I'm recommitting myself to the sanctuary of God and the ordinances of life, the means of grace. For some of you, public worship doesn't matter to those that are close to you. Your parents may not care about this. Your spouse might not even be here. Your children may have given up on this long ago. But you're committed. You're committed to making much of what is foolishness in the world's sight. I mean, think of all the wonderful things you could be doing during this time. But no, there's one thing needful. I realize that the church is not an impressive gathering. I'm doing my best, but it ain't much. We should not be surprised, therefore, to see so many young people captivated by social media and their phones, so many intellectual university students looking down their noses at the Christian faith, filled with the certainty that wisdom has finally landed at their feet after all the generations of man. So many busy young families and middle-aged successful careerists leaving the church in the dust of their baby carriages and SUVs 
and sports cars. So many jaded, aged, ex-hippie baby boomers living out the last few days on the planet, trying to maximize as much pleasure as they can, jumping from place to place and forsaking the assembly of God. I am not surprised. All these unbelieving generations caught up in the lie of human standards, fallen sinful values and ideals, rejecting the bride of Christ, just as these soldiers rejected the king of kings, standing, sitting, lying right in front of them. I think a third lesson that you need to learn and something I hope will change you this morning is you need thicker skin than you have, spiritually speaking. Look at the mockery that Jesus endured. Didn't say a word. He did not struggle and lapse into unbelief. He struggled, but he was faithful. You need to learn to endure mockery better than you do. This is another version of cross-bearing. We're going to get to the cross next week. This is a version of suffering for Christ. So many other Christians around the world are better than this than we are. We in the West and in America, the spiritual battle today increasingly involves understated pressure to act a certain way, to do a certain thing, to think a certain thing. Just one example here with regard to the LGBTQ plus agenda. Increasingly, it isn't enough just to be neutral on this matter in corporate settings and government in the schools, even in communities. It's not enough to just decline to endorse such things unless you positively sign off and saying, this is a veritable good. You can be fired. You can lose a contract. You can be dismissed. You can be canceled. It isn't enough to show Christian love to someone who you, in your own understanding of reality, believe is deeply ensnared in a violation of the seventh commandment, which is, thou shalt not commit adultery or any other version of unlawful sexual sin. And in love, rather than judging them for it and beating them over the head for it, you embrace them and pray for them and welcome them in your life. With this caveat, I cannot call what they call good, good. I cannot call sin something righteous. No, people are being asked to deny core beliefs and positively endorse things as ought to be mocked, not celebrated. You need thicker skin. The battle is calling for it. And finally, speaking of things which ought to be mocked, I suspect this point will give you some food for thought. You need to recover the lost art of Christian mockery. You need to learn to mock. You need to learn creative, subtle, and in some cases, not so subtle ways to mock the enemies of our Lord. Well, aren't we supposed to love our enemies? 
Indeed. Absolutely. And sometimes, sometimes, the most loving thing that you can do is laugh or belittle or sarcastically engage the foes of God with the very thing that they use to attack him in the first place. Consider taking unbelief a little less seriously, in other words. After all, living and acting like God doesn't exist is what comes to sinners naturally. So when they grieve the loss of their idols, let's dance. When they celebrate the erection of yet another Tower of Babel by which man in his own unaided power will ascend to the heavens and declare victory over all the world, let's weep. Learn to despise what God's enemies praise. Learn to praise what God's enemies despise. In a day when everyone is blurring the lines in matters of faith, you should learn to sharpen, not weaken them. Don't soften the antithesis. Strengthen it. Underline it. Double underline it. Put it in bold. May the world know from our lives the difference and the distinction between truth and falsehood, between light and darkness, between faith and unbelief, and good and evil. I know God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And, but notice how it isn't just the soldiers who mock Jesus in this morning's text. Our Savior himself, by his silence, is mocking them. In wordlessly acquiescing to their torment, our Savior completely repudiates everything that these men stand for. You would do well to embrace his kingship and follow his example. Let us pray. Father, as we conclude this morning's sermon, we, we do pray that you will change us that you would help us to guard our hearts, to recommit to public worship and all that that means. Help us, Lord, to have the full armor of God as we go about our daily lives, that we might withstand the attacks of the enemy, including the mockery that is becoming so prevalent amongst us. And may we find creative, humble yet bold ways to expose that which is truly evil for what it is. We ask that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit in all of these things. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House, located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.